Hello, everyone. How are y'all doing? Oh, it's so fun to be back with you guys. I'm still nervous, though, even though I've, I've been looking forward to this and I'm still nervous. But it's so good to be back with you guys again. There's so many people here. And then I'm like, where are my young adults? They're there, they're there. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to do that. And the young adult pastor, I got to point out the young adults that are out there. Okay, so how are you guys doing with this Genesis study? Are y'all, y'all are enjoying it? It's intense, right? It's like really good though to dig deep, to hear the story, be reminded of God's promise and how he interacts with his people. But I will be honest, Genesis is crazy, right? (laughs) Like what is going on? In Amy's intro a couple weeks, she uh, compared Genesis 1 through 11, and she said it was like the first season of a TV series, right? Um, We're in the second season right now of Genesis, and this is the week that you call your friend, and you're like, did you watch last night's episode? Did you see what happened? Like, it is crazy. Speaking of TV shows from back in the day, did anyone used to watch Lost? Anybody? I know, y'all, I dedicated so much of my life to that show. It was so good, and then it wasn't. But when it was good, the first season, we were figuring things out. Second season, it was like this. We were like, we don't know what's going on. And we were on Reddit threads and Facebook groups trying to get answers to all of our questions. So I've read Genesis before. You guys, I'm guessing, have read Genesis before. But going back through it with a fine-tooth comb, I had to laugh to myself. And in the words of my friend Serena over there, I said to myself more than once, this is wild. (laughs) Wild, right? So let's just do a quick recap of all the wildness that we see in these four chapters. Number one, full-grown men are told to get circumcised. Number two, a post-menopausal woman is told again that she is going to have a baby. Number three, Abraham has lunch with the Trinity, maybe. Number four, Abraham has a conversation with God where it seems like he's trying to convince God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Number five, two male angels visit Lot and the men of the city come for them and try to abuse them. Number six, Lot says, take my daughters instead. (laughs) Number seven, Lot has to be convinced to leave the city. Number eight, on the way out of town, his wife looks back and turns into salt. And then number nine, um, now that they are in safety, Lot's daughters decide to get their dad drunk and sleep with him in order to secure their line. I don't even want to think about that. Number 10, um, Abraham once again lies about his wife and says that she is his sister. Now I know that, like, you know, technically she is. But again, he does the same thing. And then God goes to Abimelech and is like, hey, this is some other man's wife. You're going to die. Four chapters, y'all. All we had were four chapters. And this was crazy. Lots of confusion and poor decisions. And this is the story that we're told, right? This is the story we have. This is the family that God has chosen. And honestly, this family is a lot like us. If we're honest, I mean, not all of the crazy stuff, but some of the crazy stuff is a lot like us, right? More than we'd like to admit, we are like Abraham, Sarah, and Lot, right? And we can look at them and we can judge them, which, you know, I'm sure... If you didn't, I did. I judged them a lot through these four chapters, what they were doing. 
But it's because I have the rest of the story. I can look ahead and I can see where we're going and I can look at their story and be like, why couldn't you just get it figured out? Like, you know God, but they don't know God, right? They're in the middle of it. They're, They're just getting to know him, just building a relationship with him, just now learning what it means to follow him, right? So they're gonna mess up and they do mess up, but then we mess up too. Even though we have all of scripture, it doesn't mean that we follow God perfectly either, right? We mess up over and over. And so in reading their story, we see ourselves and the ways that we mess up. And so my grandmother used to say um, this thing, and I can't remember if I said it here or maybe it was on the daily, but she used to say that God takes care of babies and fools. And I used to think, well, does God not take care of me because I'm not a baby or a fool? But yeah, I know, y'all know where I'm going. As I got older, then I realized that we fall into one of two categories. I'll let you guys decide which category. But I know that I make foolish choices all of the time. Sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes out of selfishness, and sometimes out of poor judgment. So a few weeks ago, my husband went out of town, and um, on the weekend, my kids, uh, I let them like sleep in my room. So we blow up an air mattress and we just have a big camp out in my bedroom for the night. They love it, I love it, it's just really fun. And the next morning, the air mattress that we had blown up was um, kind of half uh, blown up. And so my two-year-old Audrey is kind of falling onto it and she's just bouncing up and laughing and having a great time. And then my nine-year-old comes in, sits on the other side of it and she kind of bounces up in the air. So then I think, oh, this'll be fun. Do you guys know what a blob is? Y'all know? So the blob is like this big air mattress that sits on a lake and a person sits on the blob and then another person from a platform dives off onto the blob and then the person sitting goes flying in the air. So I look at my son and I'm like, hey, you should blob Audrey, my two-year-old. Because I'm thinking, it's just going to be a little bounce. Well, no, because there's a, quite a weight differential. So he pounces on the bed. She goes up in the air flying and then grazes the side, the wooden side of our bed. So God takes care of babies and fools, right? <laughs> um, she's fine. She's fine. She had a little thing on her chin that I had to explain to um, our uh, kids plus our kids worker on Sunday, but she's fine. Um, so when I'm looking at Abraham sideways and I'm judging him, I have to remember that I make foolish decisions all the time, right? And so after reading all the craziness and working through this study, I got to that question that Jen poses at the end in the wrap-up section where she says, what aspect of God's character has this week's passage of Genesis shown you more clearly? And all I could think is that God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. God is so much merciful, much more merciful than we can ever imagine. And so our focus today is on God's mercy. The main takeaway, the thing that I want you guys to remember when you leave is that because of God's mercy to us, we can extend mercy to others. But before we trace God's mercy through these passages, let's look at what mercy is. So this summer, our young adult ministry, we read through A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. It's one of my favorite books, and it's about the attributes of God. And so he has this, he has a section on mercy, and um, I think it will help us understand it. So I'm going to read you part of what it says. So he says, when through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we children of the shadows reach at last our home in the light, we shall have a thousand strings to our harps, but the sweetest may well be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly the mercy of God. For what right will we have to be there? 
Did we not by our sins take part in that unholy rebellion which rashly sought to dethrone the glorious king of creation? And did we not in times past walk according to the course of this world? But we who were at one time enemies and alienated in our minds through wicked works shall then see God face to face, and his name shall be in our foreheads. We who earned banishment shall enjoy communion. We who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven, and all through the tender mercy of our God. Isn't that awesome? Mercy is an attribute of God, and according to Tozer, it is an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which disposes God to be actively compassionate. In the Oxford Dictionary, it's defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So mercy causes us to act with compassion and forgiveness. And in most cases, maybe all cases, there's a kind of power differential at work, right? Some sort of power dynamic. That there is someone who has power to control the situation, to give a positive or a negative outcome. And so for God, he not only has that power, but he's the only one with the right to pass judgment and to condemn us or sentence us to death. And so he sees the craziness going on, on, going on in Genesis, but he looks at Abraham with compassion. He looks at Lot with compassion, and he looks at Sarah with compassion. He knows that he needs to teach them, right? He knows that he needs to show them what it means to follow him and to be set apart. And he knows that they're going to mess up. And so because of God's mercy to us, we can extend mercy to others. Okay, so now we're going to trace God's mercy through these four chapters. And because of time, we're not going to be able to answer every question that I'm sure you guys had, but Amy told me that she will answer all of them for you. So, (laughs) Um, okay, so before we dive into Genesis 17, let's just remember where we were, right? So in Genesis 16 is the story of Hagar. Abram and Sarai, because of their lack of faith in God's promise of a future child, take, it, take matters into their own hands, right? They decide that they are going to secure their own legacy. And so Abram sleeps with his servant, Hagar. She conceives and gives birth to Ishmael, right? And so then Sarah, Sarai treats her harshly, and she flees. She leaves. But God sees Hagar, right? He sees her, and he blesses her. And then he tells her to return back. To Abram and Sarai. And so then in Genesis 17, we see God appears to Abram again. And it's been about 13 years since he's heard from God. And the first thing that God does is double down on his promise to him. He appears to Abram and he tells him again that he will make him father of many. And then he changes his name from Abram, which means father of many, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And then he changes Sarai's name. And so the interesting thing about her name change is that it's subtle, right? Sarai and Sarah both mean princess, but um, Bruce Walkie in his commentary on Genesis says this about her name change. He says, Sarai, her birth name, probably looks back on her noble descent, whereas Sarah, her covenantal name, looks ahead to her noble descendants. Yeah, is that cool? Yeah, did I say she's the only one that gets a name change in the Bible? Um, which is cool. 
So again, he tells them, I'm going to give you offspring. This is the promise. It will happen. So naturally, Abraham, Abraham finds this unbelievable, right? He's like, I'm 99 years old, right? And Sarah is 90. How is this going to happen? Well, if you look in your Bible at Genesis 17, um, starting in verse 17, it says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Then he reminds God that he has a son. Remember Ishmael? So continuing in verse 18, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And I think this statement is a lament as much as it is a request, right? I like to think that Abraham knows what he did was wrong, that taking matters into his own hand and sleeping with Hagar was not God's um, best, you know, intention. But he's saying, but Ishmael is here. Cannot the promise go through him? Can't we just use Ishmael? And so what does God say in verses 19 and 20? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He, he shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. God is merciful even to Ishmael. Even though Ishmael is not the chosen one, God still blesses him, right? He's still blessed. And even though Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hand, he blesses them still, right? He has mercy on them and he doesn't change his mind or break his promise. He holds true to the promise that he made. And so then in chapter 18, we see how God's mercy continues in the way that he interacts with Sarah, um, chapter 18 begins with a visitation from three men. And who are these men? Again, ask Amy. Just kidding. <laughs> She's shaking her head. Um, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. Is it the Trinity? Uh, probably not. It's, um, perhaps it's the Lord and two angels, right? But what we do know, whether or not we know who these specific people are, we do know that Abraham recognized that he was standing before the Lord. And so then he's rushing around to gather food and drink to present before them. Right, And while the men are eating, they ask Abraham about Sarah. And so in Genesis 18, verse 9, it says this. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but she did laugh. <laughs> so here, God is definitely merciful, right? So the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so that means that Sarah was no longer experiencing her monthly cycle. She was postmenopausal. Um, her body could no longer uh, carry a child or support life within her body. 
So when Sarah hears the Lord say that next year she's going to have a child, she laughs to herself. And it's not the same laugh that Abraham does in the previous chapter, which is a laugh out of shock and and awe. Her laugh is what I think of as a bitter laugh, right? She says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. And what she's really saying is now, now that I'm old, you're going to give me a baby? Now? It feels impossible. But God hears her, right? As he's talking to Abraham, he hears her and he says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah, rightfully, is frightened and probably a little bit embarrassed. And she's quick to lie. She says, I didn't laugh. And I love, love God's response. Y'all laughed with me when he says, no, but you did laugh, right? Don't deny it, Sarah, you laughed. And then that's kind of where the story ends. Then we kind of transition on to the next scene. But in this scene, we can see how merciful God is. Because in other areas of scripture, when people lie to God, they die, right? You know, yes. In your study, Jen brought it up, right? She references Acts 5 verses 1 through 11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of property and give the money to the apostles, but they really keep some back for themselves. And then when they're confronted, they die. They just literally fall down and die. And so the difference here, at least I think, is that Sarah's lie comes from a place of frustration and even embarrassment at the fact that she doesn't have enough faith to believe that God will do what he says he will. She's lived with shame for so long because of her barrenness that hearing this, it touches a place inside of her that is deep and hidden and painful, right? And God is merciful to her. He doesn't strike her down for her disobedience. He's moved to act with compassion and mercy by not just preserving her life, but by reminding her that he sees her, shining light into that place of pain and reminding her, I will keep my promise. I will keep my promise. I will provide. And so I love that story of her. And then we move on further into chapter 18, right? And this is where Abraham and God have a conversation about Sodom. God has heard the outcry um, against Sodom and Gomorrah. He's heard that there are these terrible things that are going on and God has these plans to deal with them severely. So Abraham and God talk about it, right? They have this question and answer dialogue where um, Abraham asks God, basically, what will it take for you to spare the city? How many righteous people do you need to find? If there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God says, yes. Then he's like, what about 40? What about 30? What about 10? He keeps going down and down. And really what Abraham is wondering is, will God deal with the righteous the same way he deals with sinners? Will he destroy those who seek to follow him? And he might honestly even be thinking about himself. He's done some very unrighteous things in the past, right? What level of righteousness is necessary to hold back God's hand? It's worth noting in this passage that um, a lot of people say that this passage is used to show that Abraham changed God's mind. That's not what's happening. Abraham interceded for Sodom and appealed to God's mercy for them, right? But we have to be honest. Like, we know the character of God, right? Or at least we're learning about it now, that God is always just. He is always merciful, It never changes. He is always just. He is always merciful. And he has always made a way out for the righteous, whether it's one or it's 50. God has always made a way out. 
So this conversation is a picture of the way that we can appeal to God for one another. But it is not saying that Abraham is changing or causing God to change his mind or to act in a different way. So then we get to Sodom. This is the craziest chapter, right? In chapter 19, two angels appear to Lot. Um, He invites them in to stay. And during the visit, the men from the city come and they're banging on the door and they're asking for these men. They want these men to come out so that they might know them and abuse them. And so there's a lot that we can say about what's happening in this chapter. Um, This one is the wildest by far. And as I was reading this, I noticed something that I hadn't paid attention to before. And actually, what I noticed here is, was kind of gave birth to this whole message for the day. So in this story, most people focus on the situation with the men. What's happening with the men? What does know them mean? Why are the men of the city coming in to, to get them? Or they focus on Lot's wife. Why did she turn to salt? What does salt mean? What I noticed, what stood out to me, is in Genesis 19, starting in verse 15. It says, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Right? That's so cool. It says the city is about to be destroyed. The city is about to be destroyed, and the angels are urging them, leave quickly. You have to go. And what is Lot doing? He's hesitating. Why? Why is he hesitating? It doesn't tell us why. Maybe he doesn't want to leave his life behind. Maybe he's um, trying to, to debate whether or not God really is going to destroy the city. We don't know the reason why he hesitates, but he does. And when he hesitates, the angels grab his hand. They grab his hand and they grab the hands of his wife and his daughters and lead them out of the city. And that struck me when I read it because I felt like I had never read that before. And it was just such a beautiful picture of mercy. Like how when we are faced with destruction, God grabs us by the hand and pulls us out. And it was just a beautiful picture that I was like, this This resonates so much, and then I began to see mercy all over the pages. But he leads them to safety. Despite all of their crazy behavior, despite what we know is to come, God leads them to safety. He grabs them by the hand and has compassion on them. And I just love, love that image, that beautiful image of mercy. So then it takes us to our last chapter, chapter 20, right? This brings us back to Abraham. And again, Abraham is traveling. And as he's traveling, um, he reaches another city where, as we talked about before, he lies about his wife. He says his wife is his sister. And so then Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. Um, And Abimelech has no clue what's going on. He's been lied to. So he has this dream and God appears to him. And when God appears to him, he tells him literally that he is a dead man because he has taken another man's wife. And so naturally Abimelech is is startled by this and concerned. And so they have this um, conversation. They kind of go back and forth, Abimelech and God discussing this. And so then God says to him, if you will return her, then you will not die. And so Abimelech does so. But when he does it, he also calls out Abraham. Why did you do this thing to me? Right? And so Abraham sheepishly explains himself. And then Abraham prays to God. And God heals Abimelech and the entire household. And so in that, we see how God has shown Abimelech 
incredible mercy. And the mercy that Abimelech is receiving comes from someone else's sin. Someone else has done something and messed up, and it's caused these consequences to befall him, right? And so God has shown him mercy, even though he had nothing to do with the situation. Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature, which disposes God to be actively compassionate. God is merciful. He is compassionate and his compassion for us, his compassion for us moves him to treat us with mercy. He knows that we're going to mess up. We're going to mess up over and over and over again and that we cannot do it on, on our own. We cannot do this life on our own. We need help. And so we see it in these four chapters, but we see it throughout scripture, the way that God is constantly being merciful to us and to the people in the Bible. And so because of God's mercy to us, we can extend mercy to others. Because of what we have read here, we can see the extreme mercy of God at work. And just based on that, we should be moved to extend mercy to others, right? But sometimes we forget that God is merciful. In fact, we often judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their behavior, right? It resonates. The wording of this quote is attributed to Stephen M. R. Covey, but variations of it have been said by lots of different people because it's so true. We judge ourselves by our intentions, right? We're trying, we are trying, we are working on ourselves. We are trying to get better. We're trying to be faithful. Our intentions are good. I'm trying to do it. Even if our behavior is bad, we justify it because we know it's in our own heart, right? God be merciful to me. I'm trying. But then we judge others by their behavior, right? There's this person that I know, um, and she posts on social media quite a lot. And some of the things that she posts are shocking and hurtful and honestly just really mean. Her responses even to other people's posts are mean. Like in that comment section, she says things that just shock me. Like I, I'm so taken aback by the way that she is interacting with people. And, and it screams to me a message that is so counter to Jesus. And she claims to be a Jesus follower. And so it just leaves me confused. And so I look at her behavior online and I judge her, right? I condemn her. I think to myself, I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I don't want you to be around my kids. And I'm confused because we used to be friends and now you're acting in a way that I just can't be around. You're no longer safe. And so maybe you hear that description of someone that you know Maybe you know someone or follow someone on social media and you think that same thing about them. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, good riddance, just unfriend them. You don't need to be friends with them, right? Well, I know that her posts are mean, but I also know that they are not coming from a place of meanness, that they're not coming from a desire to be mean or to hurt other people. She posts that way ultimately because of fear. She... Um, is fearful of the world around her. She is fearful of what's going on and things are moving so fast that she can't keep up, right? And we know that fear has a story. Fear is complex and fear causes us to do things that we would not normally do, right? It causes us to behave badly. And so while I want to condemn her, and sometimes I do in my mind, I try to repent and remember that God has been so merciful to me and I try to extend that same mercy to her. 
I try to ask her how she's doing, ask her what's going on. How are you processing what's happening in the world? How are you handling it? I share my own struggles, my own fears, and I remember that it is hard out here. It is hard in the world. Now, this doesn't excuse her behavior, right? She will still have to reckon one day with the choices that she's made, the things that she's said, but it's a reminder to me, at least, that her behavior doesn't tell the whole story, that it's often a symptom of something else going on inside. So what does this look like for you? How has God shown you incredible mercy? What are some moments that you can reflect on where um, you've seen God extend you mercy, where he should have taken you out, but he didn't? How has God shown you mercy? And for some of us, that mercy is so pivotal, right? When you, we, we've got that image and it's so pivotal and so monumental that it totally changed our life right? We were headed in one direction and God's mercy, we received it and then it changed our lives. We went a completely different way. So now that you have that moment of when God was super merciful to you, think about a time when you were able to show mercy to someone else. That because of God's mercy to you, you could show that to someone else. Think about a time when you had the power to take someone else out, but you didn't. You instead extended mercy when you could have passed judgment or cast them out or separated them from the group, but you didn't. A time when you chose not to exercise your right to condemn someone. And we're, we're often so quick to point out the wrong in others that we don't take time to really listen to what's going on, do we? I'm a parent, um, I have three little kids, um, two of which are quickly becoming big kids, and um, I find it really hard to discipline them. Parenting is hard, I don't like disciplining my kids, I just want us to like have fun and be happy all the time, but we can't do that, right? We have to discipline, right? It's necessary. And so when I began my parenting journey, I thought it was all about consequences and punishment. And then I learned that the root word of discipline is disciple, right? And so instead of just handing down punishment, I try to bring them closer. I try to walk with them and help them understand what's going on in the inside. I help them understand what went wrong so that we can then move forward and make better choices, right? So what if in extending mercy, we saw it as an opportunity for discipleship? What if we took our stories of how God has shown us tremendous mercy and use it to help others know God more deeply and to receive his mercy? Because of God's mercy to us, we can extend mercy to others. So I want to end with this quote from Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy. And it says, we all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps... We all need some measure of unmerited grace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, just what a privilege it is to be together. God, I thank you so much for the women that are here that have chosen to take this time out of their schedules to gather to learn more about you, to read your word and commit themselves to understanding and growing deeper in their knowledge and love for you. 
I'm so thankful, God, for what you are doing in each of their hearts, how you are growing them, how you are shaping them. And Father, help us to understand what it means to be merciful. God, remind us of the ways that you have been merciful to us and give us the power to extend mercy to others, to see others, to hear others, to listen, to lean in, to disciple. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will you just equip us to be the kind of people who um, give a picture of mercy to the world. When everyone is trying to condemn and to cancel and to separate, may we be women who gather, who show mercy, who invite mercy and reflect that. Father, I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.